You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. But the reform movement begins mostly in Germany in the 1700s. Uh, this is very important to our story because otherwise the entire dispute that we're going to learn about is not going to make sense. The reform movement then was very different than the reform movement now. Very different. Primarily, and this is a big deal, the, primarily the reason why the reform movement was so different then was because when the reform movement begins... Um, l- l- let me step away and go in a different direction for a second. If you take a look at the Sephardim versus the Ashkenazim, amongst the Ashkenazim, we've kind of broken ourselves, and we've talked about this, into groups, Reform Jews, Conservative um, Jews, and Orthodox Jews. And as we've mentioned in the previous class, there is no such thing. There is no such thing, meaning there's just Jews. This is a, it's an imaginary division that we divide people up based on their level of, of belief and observance. It's not a real division. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, right. It's not real. The only real division that exists is Kohanim, Levim, Yisraelim. That's because there are actually technical differences in, in the observance of Torah based on what group you're from. But... And, and nevertheless, Ashkenazim kind of break themselves off into those three groups. Sephardim, generally speaking, don't. And you can see, you can see um, the differences that that, uh, that that causes. For example, if you have someone who's um, of the Sephardic community, and even if they are what you would call not so observant, they'll still pray in the one synagogue, in the one community shul. They don't need separate synagogues. Uh, you know, they're not observant, but when they go to shul, you go to shul. Well, amongst the Ashkenazim, you actually, you, your shul is, is, uh, is part of um, how you define your, um, your uh, identity. Is, it, becomes a, it becomes a part of... A, um, it becomes a part of who you are. In... The way that this developed was because when the reform movement originally, um, I guess, developed in the 1700s, they, they were trying to create a, and I'm trying to be gentle with the words, they were trying to um, work with Judaism in a way where they felt that it would keep people safer and it would keep people connected. That was the goal. And they felt that one of the reasons why Judaism was having a difficult time, again, this is all the argument of the, of the um, creators of the reform movement, they saw that so many Jews were having a hard time interacting with the Gentiles and not being accepted, that they felt that if we could change Judaism, and let's use the word reform Judaism, but not by going against the basic principles of Judaism, but by um, kind of bringing Judaism back to its original place, 
where Judaism was simpler and more biblical, they felt that uh, this would protect the Jewish people and would help Judaism carry on, which then creates, like we said, a different group of, uh, of Jews who identify themselves differently. This is all the, the creation, which is why amongst the Sephardim, again going back to that point, and because there was no such movement that was developed, there's just there's no creation of separate identities. But here, it's again, not just I'm less observant. Reform Judaism, actually, when it was created, had a system in place for how they felt Judaism should be observed, so it was an alternate form. In other words, let me say it like this. In, amongst the Ashkenazim, this group feels you should be doing 613 commandments. The other opinion says you should only be doing 306.5 commandments. And, um, and therefore, they have to have a separate synagogue. But amongst the Sephardim, everyone says you should have 613 commandments. Just some people are better at doing it than others, so they still have one shul. That's, that's the way that... So originally, when the reform movement develops, what they're saying is, when God gave us the Torah, the Torah was relatively simple, if we may, compared to what it is today. For example, Shabbat, keeping Shabbat, so you avoid the 39 malachot, so you don't plant, you don't plow, you don't... But then came along the rabbis, and they extended and expanded all these prohibitions and enactments, and the reform movement claimed that that was what was pushing the Jewish people down and suppressing us in exile. And so if we can reform those things, then the Jewish people can be released, so to speak. So they had these conferences in, in 1844, 1845, and 1846. These were the um, main conferences of the reform movement, um, first in Braunschweig, then in Frankfurt, and then in Breslau. But the one in Braunschweig, which was the first in 1844, there they came out with the list of the things that are now permitted. A list of all the things that were permitted. So, for example, um, the things that they got rid of would include things like uh, um, having two days of Yom Tov, uh, two days of uh, Pesach, and two days of Sukkot, and two days of Shavuot. So they said, this is, uh, there's only one day in the Torah. There, um, in the days when we couldn't, keep track of the calendar because we had to wait for witnesses who saw the moon and all of that so you had to have uh, you had to have two days so uh, and then but now we have the calendar again we know exactly when when the yamim tovim are so our, our sages in the talmud say why do we still have two days and the talmud says it's a minhag we have the customs of our um, of our forefathers, and so it's a, it's a minhag, said the reform movement. Well, we don't need that, so let's get rid of that. So, that was, that's an example. The one we're going to focus on today is the one which probably has caused the, the most stress, the most internal stress within the Jewish people, which is that in, in, in 1844, in Braunschweig, they permitted for a Jewish man to marry a non-Jewish woman. They said that that is now, from now on, going to be allowed. And we'll explain what they were, what they were arguing. Now, if you think about it, this seems like a... Again, we're not, we're not here in anyone's personal life. But this seems like for, for people to claim that that's allowed is very different than saying, well, we're not, we're not going to follow that. 
Right? Saying that it's allowed means that they felt that this is actually something that's not prohibited. And so they said, if it's not prohibited, then this is something we are now going to allow. We'll, we'll come to the exact arguments coming up soon. And on the other side of the debate, that's the um, rabbis of the reform movement, on the other side is Reb Tzvi Hirsch Chayas. Reb Tzvi Hirsch Chayas was a, an exceptional rabbi from Galicia. He was born in 1805, and, uh, but he was already a leading rabbi in Galicia by the 1820s. Very, very, very. Um, um, he, in fact, he he was he was one of the leading Talmudists of the generation. He was again one of the leaders, uh, the pillars of the community. But also, he was very not, uh, he was very learned in all areas, not just in Torah. He had a uh, PhD, which was an exception to all the rabbis in Galicia. Basically, he was um, he was. Educated in uh, in in all fields of study, and so the reform movement at that time were rabbis who were very learned, who knew the Talmud, who knew the entire Torah. This is again the beginning of the of the reform movement. These are very um, great, great, righteous uh, um, people, um, like the Noda Yehuda, His students became some of the uh, creators of the, of the reform movement. Um, you know, exactly the, the, the history of the reform movement means a longer discussion. But this Reb Tzvi is because he was respected and honored by the rabbis of the reform movement, they wanted him to approve of what they had done. They wanted him to come over to their side. And that's why you have so much discussion going on between Reb Tzvi Hirschchayes and the, and the rabbis of Germany. So here's what it comes down to. Because Reb Tzvi Hirschchayes, when he heard of this, he wrote a letter against the things that they permitted. In fact, um, the, the full list of all the things that specifically he attacks uh, of what they had permitted during these conferences, is the f- uh, I'm just going to list, there were ten issues that he raises in this discussion. Number one is where they changed the prayers from being in Hebrew to being in German. Number two, they allowed instruments to be played on Shabbat. Again, that is pulling back the rabbinical prohibition. Number three is intermarriage, which we're going to discuss today. Um, number four is that they claim that Kohanim don't have to behave like Kohanim because we don't know whether anyone's really a Kohen. And number five is they allowed you to ride the train on Shabbat. Number six was they removed the prohibition of Kitniot on, on Pesach. Number seven was... Um, the how, how seriously we should take Brit Mila. Number eight is um, well. Um, number eight is a it's a longer, complicated thing. But let me say it like this: Number eight is how much will we allow people to transgress the Torah in order to get them to avoid um, being baptized? How much allowance would we allow? Number nine is the um, is the seriousness of oaths and the, the, related to the prayer of Kol Nidre, which the Christians had a big problem because they felt like that the Jews weren't keeping promises. And number ten was the structure of the shul um, and the, the way that the shul is set up, which is that the reform movement changed. Anyway, um, but it, 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 he was... He went after them on all of these topics, and they responded to him. And so what I'd like to share is uh, the discussion, and this is how it goes. And again, uh, most rabbis would avoid bringing this up. 
but <laughs> let's let's Wait, let's but do it. Not kosher, because they are not kosher today. There is no movement that is not kosher. Right. So they keep kosher in those days. Yes. Yes, the reform movement kept kosher in those days, and, and we're going to come back to this point, which is that at this time, in the 1840s, the reform movement <coughs> is not, it, 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 its, its position is that we keep the Torah, we just feel that the rabbis have piled on all this stuff from thousands of years, and we want to shed some of that. That's, that's, that was the position. Okay. So... It says in the Torah. So let, let's let's start like it. So what is it? What is the rule about intermarriage? We, when we think of intermarriage, we think that it should be something that's written clearly in the Torah. You you shall not marry someone, but it doesn't say it so clearly. What do I mean? It's actually this week's parasha. It says ki yviacha Hashem elokecha al haaretz asher atava When you arrive in the land, which you will come to inherit. And God will throw out, He will kick out, He will remove many great nations from before you. And it says in the Torah, These are seven nations. These are the, the Sheva Amim that existed in the land of Canaan before we arrived. And God will give them to you. You are expected to get rid of them. Don't make peace with them. We know that the Jewish people didn't end up listening to this and they ended up making peace with the nations. And that's why, um, if you look throughout the story of Tanakh, we keep falling for their idols and then, and then we learn our lesson and then, uh, and then we fall again for their idols and the reason why that happens is because we made peace with them we have, the Torah says do not marry them it says in the Torah you shall not marry them <laughs> your daughter you should not give to their sons and, their, and uh, um, their daughter you shall not take for your son. So if you look at, that's a pasuk in the Torah. Again, if you don't keep the Torah, you don't keep the Torah. But the reform movement at this point is claiming that it's keeping the Torah and it's only rejecting and removing the din of the Rabbanan, the things that the rabbis added. But here we have a pasuk in the Torah that says that you cannot marry someone from another nation. So this seems like a contradiction, right? seems like a refutation, I should say, of the reform movement. The problem is, the problem is, that in that pasuk in the Torah, who is it talking about? The seven nations. It's talking about the Shiva Amim. So if the Torah is only talking about the Shiva Amim, that means it's only a biblical prohibition to marry someone from those seven nations and not of any other nation. So why do we prohibit marriage from every nation? So I'm going to share with you the Lashon HaRambam. These are the words of the Rambam. Yisrael Sheba Al-Kutit A Jew who has a relationship, physical, intimate relationship, with a non-Jew there's different versions of the text because of the censors, but let's just go with that. Misha'ar umot, from the other nations. Two big words. Derech ishut means 
in the form of marriage. So a Jew who has a relationship with a, um, with a non-Jewish woman in the derech yishut, what's a better way to translate that? It means in, 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 the, in the format of marriage, Oh, Yisraelit Shinivalalakum, or a Jewish girl who has a relationship, a physical relationship with a non-Jew. Derech Ishut in the format of marriage. Hare Elu Lokin Min HaTorah, you get lashes from the Torah. The Rambam. Shenemar, it says, Lo Titchatem Bam, Bitcha Lo Titen Libno, Ubito Lo Tikach Libanacha, says the Rambam, Echad Shiva Amamim, the Echad Kal Umot Isur Zeh. Is the Rambam's position that this prohibition that the Torah says that you shall not marry someone from another nation says the Rambam that is referring to both um, the seven nations and every other nation and therefore, end of discussion, the Rambam says a Jew to be with a non-Jew in the format of marriage um, is a biblical prohibition which means again that the, uh, certainly the, the openings um, uh, the, uh, created here by the reform movement would be unjustified because it is a biblical prohibition and not just a rabbinical enactment the way they read it. Now says the Rambam, how do I know this? How do I know if in the Torah, you re- I read the Psukim, it looks like it's only referring to the seven nations, then how do I know that it's referring to all the nations? Says the Rambam, V'chein meforash al yidei Ezra says, if you look, it's in the book of Ezra where it says, V'asher lo niten b'notenu la'amei ha'aretz v'et b'notehem lo nikach l'banenu that they, they, in the days of Ezra and when they, when they came back, they saw that the, all the Jews had married non-Jewish women and they had children and, and there was, it was a real big mess and they had to get them to send away all of, all of their wives but, but it, the Rambam quotes a pasuk in Ezra where it says that we're, we're no longer going to have um, our, our daughters marry um, and our sons marry those uh, foreign nations. Uh, the Rambam doesn't tell you this. He assumes that you know this. But in the previous Pasuk it says, Lalachet b'Torat Elokim asha b'yad Moshe eved Elokim. Meaning in the previous verse it says that we have to stick to the Torah that it says in Torah Moshe that you should not marry someone from another nation. It says the Rambam, it's not my interpretation. It's Ezra who interprets this verse for us and tells us that in Torah Moshe it is prohibited for a Jew to marry a non-Jew. And then the Rambam goes on and he says, this is really interesting, that he grants that if a Jew lives with a non-Jew, but not in the format of marriage, meaning a Jew just decides he's going to live his entire life with a non-Jew, says the Rambam, that's only the Rabbanan. The Rabbanan. That's Isur the Rabbanan. That's not an Isur Minatorah. It's just a gzera of the Rabbanan that you shouldn't do it. But there's no biblical prohibition for a Jew to be with a non-Jew. And, and again, that's boy or girl in either, either, either way. That would only be the Rabbanan, he says, except for Kohanim. Kohanim, they, for them it may be a biblical prohibition um, just, just to be with a, with a, with a non-Jewish woman. And uh, I, I, I would imagine that when many Jews, when they came off the boat... Um, to, to the United States if they would have been taught these halachot very, uh, much fewer of them would have claimed to be kohanim than, uh, than, than okay, wait so but a kohen can marry a yohit? 
A coin cannot marry a gear. Right, it gets difficult for coin. But it is interesting, right? That that so, so but but what the Rambam again the Rambam continues he, he goes on and discusses um, exactly what happens e- even if there's just a relationship it's still prohibited of course but that's, that's the Rabbanah but the biblical prohibition is what's called Derech Ishut which hopefully we'll have we'll have a little bit of time to discuss um, so if we stop here if we stopped right here which is probably where most rabbis would be smart enough to stop <laughs> um, we would say that's it a Jew cannot marry a non-Jew in the Torah. It is a isur de oraita, as we say, a biblical prohibition. And that's it. There's no, there's no... Again, if someone doesn't want to keep it, don't keep it. But you can't say that it's permitted, which is what the Reform Movement was doing. Yeah, that's a very, very important um, point of distinction, which, again, doesn't exist within the system of the Reform Movement today. But, uh, that, yes? What about the cases in the Bible where nice Jewish boys married the yeah, so hopefully we'll have time to get to the stories in Tanakh okay. um, they, they, they are addressed um, they are addressed in in, uh, in uh, hopefully we'll have time to get there but uh, we're specifically Shlomo and Shimshon and, and some of the Can others you yeah. right so so basically what the Rambam is saying is if we, again, before the, the Rabbanah, just if you look at the Torah itself, the Torah never says that a Jew cannot be in a physical relationship with a non-Jew. It doesn't say that in the Torah. All it says is, don't marry them, which the Rambam understands means don't go through the format of marriage with them, and that would be a biblical prohibition in every nation. But if it's just a physical relationship that's only an issue the Rabbanah it's only a, a rabbinical enactment so it's better not to get married that, go to that is that is exactly yeah. what the Rambam would say is, uh, it, it and what if they have children that doesn't how, how would that be affected right. again that depends on whether it's a, it's a Jewish girl or a Jewish boy right the status of the children right. okay okay so like I said we could have stopped here but then we have the position of the tour. Rabbi Yaakov Balaturim, uh, tw- he lived 1269 to 1343. He, was, um, he wrote what we would call the first Shulchan Aruch. Basically, the way it works is like this. When the Talmud was sealed in the year 500, at that point, all halacha, all conclusions of how a Jew should keep the Torah was in the Talmud. But the Talmud is big, and the Talmud is complicated. And it's very hard to figure out exactly what to do just by reading the Talmud. So came along, first, the great rabbi from, from um, North Africa, Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Fasi, from the city of Fez, who wrote a, the halachic conclusions of the Talmud. And then, after him, came the Rambam, who did a similar thing on his own. And then after him came... Now, the, the Rambam lives in, in Spain and then, and then works his way through North Africa to Egypt. And then came uh, the, the Rush, Rabbeinu Asher ben Yechiel, and he, he lived in, uh, in Germany and in Spain, but uh, mostly for the Ashkenazim, and he did something similar to that. So now we have three rabbis, all of whom created these works of halacha. What do we do? 
So Rabbeinu Yaakov Balaturim, he collected, put together, he sort of brought together the, 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 the riff, Rabbi Yitzchak Alfasi and the Rambam and the Rush, and he wrote what we call a Shulchan Aruch. Here's the practical halacha. And this is what he writes in the tour Shulchan Aruch. Gaya, a non-Jewish woman, there is no biblical prohibition. Asura midrabanan, she's prohibited according to the rabbis. Then he quotes the Rambam. And then he says about the Rambam, Venirali, it seems to me, She'enu Elabazayan Umot, that these verses are only the seven nations. So the tour, which is the halachic ruling that comes after the Rambam, says the Rambam is wrong. The Torah is only talking about the seven nations. And the prohibition to marry that's written in the Torah is only the seven nations. And a Jew to marry a non-Jew is only a rabbinical prohibition. That's what it says in the Torah. So the Reform Movement, these, um, we call them rabbis of the Reform Movement, said, we hold like the Torah. You're right, the Rambam says that, that it's a biblical prohibition and it's not just the seven nations, but we have the Torah. The tour is a great halachic decisor, and since he comes after the Rambam and he kind of uh, consolidates everything that's before him, he becomes the, the halacha of his... Of course, after the tour, we would then have Rabbi Yosef Cairo. What is the tour? Rabbi Yaakov Balatur. It's the first Shulchan Aruch. Right, after him would come... Because the, 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 um, the, the tour lives in, in, the, in the middle of the 14th century, by the time Rabbi Yosef Cairo comes along in the 16th century, there's so many more sources and so much more discussion that he makes a sort of updated Shulchan Aruch, and then Rabbi Moshe Israel is after him, and then you know, um, uh, you know, the, the the history of halacha is a much longer discussion. What did he choose Yeah, so so uh, he you know, they quote both opinions. That's the that's the problem. Is that uh, so? But, but where the reform movement was saying, and that's what happens later, is that they, they sort of cover all the opinions. But, but the tour makes the position very clear. It's only the Rabbana. So, Reb Tzvi Hirshchayas, he has to respond now. The reform movement is saying, you're right, the Rambam says one way, but the tour says another way, and we all like the tour. And again, there are two separate subjects here. One is, is intermarriage a biblical prohibition or rabbinical prohibition? Which is what the argument we're discussing right now is. Separate than that, which is, if it's a rabbinical, even if it's a rabbinical prohibition, does that mean you can undo it? Right? That's a separate subject, which we're not at yet. Right? But the first question, which is where it all begins, is, is, is it a biblical prohibition or is it a rabbinical prohibition? So, Tzvi Hirshchayas, Raises. Um, so, Rav Tzvi Hirshchayas raises two points in response to the um, ruling by the Reform Movement. The first, it's a complicated one, but let's try to let's try to get to it. Um, the first is that what is marriage? What is marriage? 
is it just an agreement between two people? You don't need a chuppah for that. Two people can agree to something. So w- what is marriage? It's not a business agreement, which it is in secular society. You know, if you don't have any, anything religious, right, so then all it is is just people um, creating a level of commitment with, with, uh, with the power of the law behind it. But, but from a spiritual perspective, what is marriage? Commitment to stay together. That's just a promise. That, that, what, what, that, what does that do? What do you need marriage for? So, the, the, what the Tzvi Hirshchayas explains... No, you have three conditions, right, for marriage? That's, that's three ways of creating marriage. Oh. But what is actually being created? What is a marriage? Family. So, when you say family, I'm going to say it a little different than the way you were saying, but I think this is what you mean, and please correct me if not. It means that what you're doing is you're taking two people who are strangers... And you're creating a connection between them, which wasn't there before, through a holy process. And this holy process creates a holy connection between two people. So if that's the case, can I walk over to this chair and marry it? You cannot have sex with it, so it's, your, it's not uh, a well, sure. That's not required. You don't have to consummate a marriage. No? No. Nope. Isn't it like no. a, a Jewish law that you have to have sex? No. Oh. A, a ring and... No, one of the three. I thought all three. No. At our weddings, we cover everything. We, we do chuppah we do and yichud and, and tabat and, and the, the, the veil. We do, we do all kinds of ceremonies. But, but what's required, we do way more than what's required. But what's required is, is uh, you know, just, just... So why can't I, I marry the chair? Right? How's not Jewish? It's not Jewish. Don't you have to have children? Those are things which yeah. you should have. Yeah. But but yeah, we're not talking about in in order to make the marriage valid. Because you, know, you don't need that. Between men and women, or today, can why? Why does it have to be between between people? Because you cannot do anything with Wh- your child. Why not? I mean, you can have some it's human beings. This life. chair is smarter than some people I know. <laughs> <laughs> right? I agree. Uh, right? it's, right? So the answer is because because it's not just a a, a theoretical agreement. There's something technical that happens, and if there's something technical that happens, the other individual involved has to also be capable of experiencing that technical um, um, occurrence. Right? Meaning that the chair has to be marriable. <laughs> right? And it isn't. Because it's not capable of connecting. And again, we said it's a connection of holiness. And the chair isn't capable of creating that connection of holiness. So says the Ritzvi Hirshchayas, the reason why you're talking about whether you're allowed to marry a, a Jew, a non-Jew, or you're not allowed to marry a non-Jew. He says, you're forgetting something. Nobody says, nobody, what they're talking about is, is going through the process of marrying a non-Jew. No one says that if you do it, that it works. Meaning, 
if marriage is the creation of a certain bond of holiness, says Reb Tzvi you haven't proved that a non-Jew is capable of giving or receiving that bond of holiness to even create marriage. So he, sa- so he says, you can go through the process of marriage. You can give a ring and you can say hareat uh, and whatever you want uh, but with this ring and, and you, can, you can do the process, but it's no different than doing it to a chair. Again, not because of intellect, right? That's not what it's about. It's no different than doing it to a chair because if marriage is the creation of, of, of the bond of holiness which requires Kedat Mosheva Yisrael that both should be Yisrael so then if one of them is not Yisrael all it is is a reenactment of marriage but it doesn't actually create a Torah marriage so he says you're all talking about whether you're allowed or not allowed but he says it seems like it doesn't even work even if you tried so then the question that's asked back is then, then why would the Torah prohibit it? If it actually doesn't work and it doesn't do anything, if a, if a, if a non-Jewish man says to a Jewish woman, he gives her a ring and he marries her and says all the right words, and you're telling me it doesn't work, it doesn't do anything, and it's no different than if it's performed in a play, then why is it prohibited? So he says, the Rambam says, that the issue is derech ishut. Remember, we read from the Rambam before. Derech ishut. Derech ishut means you can't live as a married couple. Which means you can live together all your life, and, and, but not as a married couple. And even if you try to get married, it won't work. But we don't want you, the Torah prohibits us from pretending like the marriage is valid so convoluted well the thing is he's saying like this he's saying it, it, it sounds very difficult uh, I, mean, I, I think your, your point I think everyone hears that where is he coming from but, but where he is coming from is, is that he believes that in the same way that a Jew can recite Kiddush for you on Shabbat but a non-Jew cannot even if the non-Jew knows all the words and he knows it better than the Jew and even if a non-Jew can tell you all the commentaries on, on what it says there, it's not about that. In order for you to create a situation of Kiddush having been recited, it's not that a human being should speak the words. It's someone who, is, who has the mitzvah of Shabbat. And because they have the mitzvah of Shabbat, they're able to make Kiddush. It, 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 yes. I have a question. Doesn't it go to all the questions or all the process of Gerim? Because this is, we have a lot of records uh, in the Torah that actually not everyone can be a Jew. Right. And it's so hard to be a Jew. So you can maybe can do a kasha, say if you are not a Jew, so it, it is a problem to marry a, a non-Jew. Well, because it's so hard to become part. Well, right. Uh, hopefully we'll have time to get into Gerut because that's what we have to get into, the, the question of, of whether... Um, the, the people in Tanakh, such as I think it was mentioned here, the example of Boaz and Ruth, mm-hmm. and then Shimshon and Delilah, you know, whether there was Gerut in those cases. Uh, hopefully we'll have time to get to that. But, but uh, again, we're, there are solutions. Obviously, Gerut is one of the solutions to this issue, but that's not what they're discussing. What they're debating here is so what, what Tzvi Hirschayas is saying, is, is, and it's, it's important to, to understand what he's trying to say, is, is if you can't make Kiddush 
because you don't have the mitzvah and without the mitzvah you can't create this ceremony so he says if you don't have the mitzvah of Kiddushin which is the mitzvah to get married of the Torah then you can't create Kiddushin that's his argument that's argument number one that's that's tough number two number two he says we have a system for rabbinical enactments and again this goes back to the to the second point which we said that number one the reform movement was saying that it's biblically um, permitted because we hold like the Tur Shulchan Aruch and therefore it's only a rabbinical prohibition so we said that there's two separate issues two debates one is it biblical or is it rabbinical which we ended up saying that it's a disagreement between the Rambam and the Tur and, and, and then the second question is but let's call it a rabbinical prohibition does that mean that a bunch of rabbis can come along and sit at a conference and say we're no longer going to prohibit those things that those rabbis prohibited so he says he, he has a long discussion which from, um, we're going to skip over which Beitin made this prohibition Who, in, if we go back in history uh, we don't always know the answer to this question, which is, um, you know, for example, which rabbi said that muktza on Shabbat, that not only can you not write on Shabbat, which is in the Torah, but you can't hold a pen. That's called muktza, right? So the rabbis came along and they said, We're, in order to stop you from uh, making mistakenly writing, don't even touch a pen. Who, who did that? Which rabbis? We don't know. But the prohibition of of, um, of a, a, a Jew marrying a non-Jew whatever is rabbinical we do know who it was we're not sure but it was one of two Dinim. either it was Ezra and Nehemiah right, which is the Anshei Knesset Agadola that means we're going back we're going back almost 2500 years or latest meaning if you don't accept that it was from the Anshei Knesset Agadola then it was one of the enactments that was put into the place by the Beitin of the Hashmanayim following the Hanukkah story where there was a lot of intermarriage during the times of Hellenism that the um, Beitin of the Hashmanayim um, placed this prohibition. So he said, with not just any rabbis, you at the conference are claiming to be greater in stature than either the Anche Knesset Agadola or the Beitin Shel Hashmanayim. So he says, even if you get past and you can convince me that it's only a rabbinical prohibition, you've still got the rabbinical prohibition. And says, I don't think that you can undo something that was put into place by the Anshik Neset Agdola or at least the Beitin of the Hashmanai. Of course, the reform movement's response to that was the famous answer of Shmuel Bedoro, Yiftach Bedoro, Yiftach Bedoro, Kishbul Bedoro, meaning that every generation has its leaders, and, and the leaders of each generation get to decide what's appropriate for that generation. Of course, that's against what it says in the Talmud. The Talmud says, Ein beitin mevatel divrei beitin chavero ela imkein gadol mimenu b'chokma u'beminyan, that no beitin can undo an enactment of a previous beitin unless they're greater. But nevertheless, that's where the debate was left at that point. Okay. Included in this discussion, I'm going to try to get through this quickly. Included in this discussion is the issue of what about the stories in Tanakh? 
where it seems like someone like Shlomo married an Isha Nachria. Right? He married a thousand, a thousand wives, and it seems from the Psukim... Everybody was Jewish except one. So if you read the, the simple understanding of the, of the Psukim, is that, uh, is that, they, were, that they were non-Jewish women. So... Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to... I wanted to read the language of the Rambam inside because his language is, is, is really, really very clear in his position. But, but let's, let's just go with... Let's just do this outside. The Rambam says, Do not make the mistake of thinking that Shlomo married a non-Jewish woman or that Shimshon married a non-Jewish woman. That's not what the Pasuk means. I'm sharing with you the Rambam's interpretation. Again, remember the Rambam takes the very stringent position here. Here's what he says. The one thing for which we don't want people to convert because of is marriage. Now, here the Rambam begins what it would become in Jewish, throughout Jewish history a very sensitive topic in many Sephardic communities to, even today they will not accept someone who has converted at all in case they're converting because of marriage and this is something that they, um, that they feel and it's all based on the Rambam the Rambam writes it's okay to convert so in order to go to Israel live in Israel? Uh, not according to the Rambam. Okay. Right? It has to be, has to be mamash l'shem shemayim. So the Rambam writes that what happened was Shlomo married a thousand women, one from every nation and tribe in the world. I mean, that was, as the Arizal explains to us, he was trying to, he was trying to bring Mashiach. He was trying to fix the world. He was going to bring peace to the world. It wasn't... A thousand tribes, yeah, I mean, uh, different, different groups. So he, one from each, because, and that's what we're told, he was going to fix the world. It's an interesting plan. Nice. Right? Um, right? And the, 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 the Gemara tells us that he said, it says in the Torah, that the king, lo yarbelo nashim, can't have too many wives, lo yosuru at lovavo, because they will turn him astray. And he said, Shlomo said, I'm chacham mikal adam, and therefore he was impervious to their effects. Of course, it doesn't work that way. But, but says the Rambam, of course they converted. They went through a process of conversion. But why were they converting? Because they, they wanted to marry Shlomo. Why did the... Of course Delilah... This is what the Rambam writes. Of course Delilah converted. But why did she convert? Because who doesn't want to be married to Hercules? Right? So... so and the thing is, the Torah, this is the Rambam's reading of Tanakh. He says when the, when, the, when the Navi refers to them as Nashim Nachriyot, they were converted. But the Navi is saying, no, they're Nashim Nachriyot because they converted for marriage. Meaning, they weren't technically Nashim Nachriyot. It was like an insulting, ah, oh, Shlomo took those Nashim Nachriyot. Even though they went through conversion, because they did it for marriage and it's, it's, it's despicable, so to speak. That's how the Rambam... What if they really believed in Judaism? Then it's fine. Yeah, if it's the Shem Shemayim, it's the Shem Shemayim. So yeah. you don't know that. 
I used to go to school with somebody who, who dated, who dated, he was Jewish, who dated a non-Jew. No, I meant it. And he went to, uh, no, no, he was not Jewish, she was. And he went to a rabbi to consult. And the rabbi asked him, are you marrying her, L'Shem Shemayim or L'Shem Shaddai? That's a quote. Okay. I'm sure you've heard this before. <laughs> I'm going to plead no comment right here. Okay, so... <laughs> the, no, but but that, that's exactly what the, what the Rambam is saying. So the Rambam takes the position that all these stories in Tanakh, that the problem is that where do we, one of the sources where we learn the halachot of Giur is from the story of Ruth and Nomi on their way back. So, we, so they're converting, Ruth is converting when they come back. But she was already married to Machlon and Kilion, the two sons of Naomi before that. Mm-hmm. So if they converted, then why is she converting again? She didn't so, so if she didn't convert, then that means Naomi's kids, Machlon and Chilion, and the children of Elimelech. Actually, they got punished, not just because of what happened. No one survived. Right, but, but presumably Elimelech, who is the Nasi, you would think that his kids would, would at least convert them. So the, the Abarbanel has an answer to this question. He suggests that a, a, uh, a conversion um, that's based on marriage can be conditional. It gets really complicated. I, I want to avoid that. But the point was, in all of these places, the Rambam learns that Nashim Nachriot means... Um, means that they were technically Jewish. Right. Others don't learn that way. Others learn, for example, in the case of Shimshon, that that, that is what we call Hora'at Sha'ah. Let me explain what that means. It means there are 613 commandments, and a Navi, this is what the Rambam writes, this is the Halacha, a Navi comes along and says that today everyone should eat pork. So not only are we able to listen to the Navi? But we have to listen to the Navi because one of the Tariag Mitzvot, one of the 613 commandments, is to listen to a Navi even when he tells you to do an Isur, but only... Well, yeah, it has to be a Navi Amet, but only if he doesn't tell you that the Isur is always gone. For example, if he says, from now on, Chazir is Mutar, like you know, like Shabtai Tzvi did, then, then he's a Navi Sheka. That we don't accept. Um, or if he tells you to do Avodah right? But otherwise, if a Navi tells you to do what's called Hora Adsha, something in the moment, I think you raised the example last time of Eliyahu at Hara Carmel bringing a, a Korban outside of the Beit HaMikdash, or uh, Mordechai telling the Jews to, to fast on Pesach, all these things, it's called Hora Adsha, so something that's just for a special um, exception, then it's allowed. So says, if you look in the Navi, it says, that Shimshon, even though no one understood what was happening, they didn't know Kimi'et Hashem That's what it says. Meaning that Hashem had commanded Shimshon to do what he needed to do in order to save the Jewish people, but that Shimshon is not an example for everyone else. So that's very good for Shimshon. It's not going to help you with Shlomo, unless you learn that somehow Shlomo had a Nevuah, but nobody suggests that Shlomo married a thousand wives based on a Nevuah. But, um, so that gets a little complicated, but this is where 
the debate ensues. What about Moshe? So Where, Mo- Moshe is before Matan Torah. So we, we generally don't um, raise that as a question, um, even though there are those who do. Usually the answer that's given is that's before Matan Torah, so the examples have to be from after Matan Torah. But even if you take the approach that it was, um, that it was before Matan Torah, you would have to say that just like Yitro converts you would have to say that um, if they arrived, um, when they arrived, they would have had to, she would have had to have converted at least after Matan Torah, um, she would have had to have gone through some conversion process. And you said, I know the story that Osnat was supposedly a descendant yeah, she was of a, Dinah, a, but where does it say that? It's, that a, it's a Midrash. It's, it, it's, a, it's a Midrash and the proof for it at best, because Midrashim never have solid proof, the best um, proof that we have uh, for the Esnat story in the Torah is the fact that she's called Asnat Bat Potiphara, and Potiphar is a Saris. So at least we know that it's not his daughter, um, meaning it could, someone's daughter that she adopted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's all fine. I'm just saying, I say, that's a Midrash. We don't have to um, you know, um, prove that to be true that's just the opinion of 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 the midrash but but to answer your question i would go back to the it's before matan torah answer for yosef and and that would be the the easier way out of this question without needing the rambam and is very difficult because according to the rambam again he would have to find a way that yosef performed some kind of conversion process and that's very difficult as we'll, as we'll explain in just a bit specifically because conversion requires a Beit Din a Beit Din requires three adult male Jews to form that Beit Din and Yosef didn't have that on hand unless he um, yeah. okay <laughs> okay so now um, I, I, I want to just get this in there's one final point, the rabbis of the reform movement sent a response to Reb Tzvi Hirschayas on this. And they said to him that you, we have they found in, in Rabbi Chayas's writings in his own um, Sfarim he had written that the Notzrim, meaning the Christians of, of today qualify for a halachic status called Ger Toshav. The discussion of Ger Toshav is very complicated, but I'm going to simplify it like this. In the Torah, there are non-Jews, and then there are Jews. Gerim are people who have gone from being non-Jews to being Jews. But in the Torah, there's also another stage between non-Jews and Gerim called Ger Toshav which is that if, a, that if a non-Jew accepts upon himself, if a non-Jew accepts upon himself certain things, and let's sum it up as the seven Noahide laws, there are different opinions, but let's take the approach, the seven Noahide laws, then they qualify for something called Ger Toshav. So the Tzvi Hirshchayas, in his own writings, had declared that Christians... Basically, today, Christians are, are fulfilling the seven Noahide laws. What are the seven Noahide laws? Not to li- eat limbs of a live animal. Right? Let's picture your 
typical law, law-abiding um, a Christian um, American um, and, uh, doesn't eat the limbs of a live animal, doesn't curse God, doesn't steal, follows the law, doesn't kill, doesn't worship idols, because Christianity is not considered idol worship for a non-Jew, and doesn't commit adultery. So if you keep those, then you qualify as a Gertoshav, as I always say, and I've mentioned this before, that actually um, you know, all the other religions, they believe that you have to be from that religion in order to get to Olam Abba. So Christians believe if you're not Christian, you, you go to hell. And Muslims believe if you're not Muslim, you go to hell. Jews don't believe that way. We believe that you do not need to be Jewish in order to go to heaven. Olam A righteous non-Jew has a portion in the world to come. And what, what I've always said is, actually a righteous non-Jew, meaning your typical law-abiding Christian, has an easier time getting into heaven than does the Jew, because the Jew has to answer for 613 commandments, and the Christian only has to answer for seven. So, but the point was that they sent back to him, they said to Ritzvir Shchayas, they said, they said, you have in your writings, they quoted him, as saying that the Christians today qualify for Ger Toshav. So he says, and his words are interesting, he says, Lo we didn't permit you to marry idol worshippers like in Indians or Chinese. Rakim Elu We're only permitting intermarriage with Christian girls and Christian boys. It's interesting that the that that, that was the response from the Reform movement. He said, No, we're in fact we would prefer it's very interesting that that was what they we would prefer that our, um, our Jewish son and daughter, it's hard to say these words, we would prefer that they marry someone who's Christian rather than someone who's atheistic, because if they're an atheist, then they're not keeping the seven Noahide laws, and then they wouldn't be a Ger Toshav, but if, 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 they're, if they're Christian, then they qualify as a Ger Toshav. And then he brings a proof from the words of the Rambam, because the Rambam says that in order for someone to be a Ger Toshav, it's not enough that they keep the Noahide laws, they have to keep the Noahide laws because they come from God. I Meaning if you keep them because you like them, that doesn't make you a Ger Toshav. You have to believe in God. So he says, so quoting the Rambam, they, this, this rabbi sent a letter to Tzvihir Shchayis, quoting the Rambam that suggests that because Christians believe in Moshe, even though they believe that uh, Jesus came afterwards and gave a New Testament, that should qualify. So Reb Tzvi Hershchayes responded to them. He said, you better not quote the Rambam. Right? You do not want to bring up the Rambam because the Rambam takes the most stringent position here besides for the fact that the Rambam says you can't be a Ger Toshav unless you accept the Noahide laws in front of a Jewish Beit Din, which the Christians don't do. Okay, I, I, I'm basically out of time. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to end this, uh, end, end this discussion with the, just a quick summary of what happened here. Again, they came out, they had the conference, and they permitted a number of things. And we, were, we, we only picked on one of them, which is that they permitted intermarriage, and the rationale was that even though the Rambam says it's, it's uh, biblical, the Torah says it's rabbinical, and they rule like the Torah. The... Um, the um, uh, and once they rule like the tour, meaning that it's only a rabbinical prohibition, then they felt like they could undo it. To which Tzvi Hershchayis raises two issues, one which I didn't really get it, it, to elaborate too much on, which was the fact um, that he says that, again, they're only talking about living together as if you're married, um, but not that the marriage actually works. 
and then we had, again, I wish I would have had more time to elaborate on what the concept of Derech Ishut was, but basically, if I could just add one more line, that would be saying that, that according to the, the way Tzvi Hirshchayas is explaining it, the reason the Torah wants you to, um, the Torah is saying, that if you just live together and you know that it's wrong and that you're not married, then there isn't such a danger to Judaism. But if you live together in, the, in matrimony, even if it doesn't work, he's saying the Torah would prohibit it because that creates a situation where people are drawn away from Judaism. And, and uh, that was number one. And number two, he didn't feel like they were qualified to go against either the men of the Great Assembly, the Anshik Nesset Agadola, or the, um, the Beitin of the Hashmanayim. Now, besides this, I want to make this, there are other issues here. There's the issues of protecting the Jewish identity, and there's issues of, of community, and th- there are other issues when it comes to um, the ca- question of intermarriage. And today, there's also a separate issue of how the communities handle when there's intermarriage that was done. For example, it used to be that in the Orthodox community, if someone married a non-Jew, the family would sit shiva, and that's no longer, that no longer applies today, basically, for, for a number of reasons. Things have changed within this subject, and this subject requires more than just one class. But what we're talking is only in this little window of time, in the 1840s, where, this, um, where the reform, reform movement had this position, which created this debate, a halachic debate, which today wouldn't happen. If there was a debate today between the Orthodox and the Reform, it wouldn't be an interpretation of the Torah halachic debate. It would be much more about policy. But at that time, it was a halachic debate, and this is how the halachic debate developed, where the Reform community came out with this permission for for marriage because they were, one, claiming it was rabbinical, and then undoing it. And then the Orthodox community was arguing that number one, according to the Rambam, whom we rule like, or they rule like, it's biblical. And number two, you can't undo it even if it's, even if it's only rabbinical. Of course, over time, that would um, create a big rift and a division between the Orthodox communities and the Reform communities. And uh, that is a division that has, um, we have yet to make any major headway in uh, closing the gap between them. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.